0: Son of Man comes, will he find safe on Earth? That's a haunting question. For the past couple of sessions that we've had together. I have been trying to highlight the meaning of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. We began looking at Levi, also known as Matthew, who was encountered um, at his tax table. Jesus came, said, follow me. Levi left everything for the sake of following in the footsteps of Christ. We then looked at the rich young ruler, to whom Jesus said, go sell everything, leave it all behind, come follow me. And yet this was a man who was so possessed by his possessions that he could not follow. And he went away very sad because he would not follow Christ. The opening question of being a disciple of Jesus Christ is just that. Will you follow him? Will you give up everything for the sake of knowing Jesus Christ in your life and living for him, walking with him, and glorifying him in your life? Certainly when we accept Christ as our Lord and Savior at that moment, we become a disciple. For good or for ill, for a great witness, for a not-so-great witness, however you measure it, we become a follower of Jesus Christ. And so much of the world's opinion of Christ comes from what it sees in disciples of Jesus Christ. The question before us is whether we have that kind of commitment, whether we have sold everything, whether we have left our own tax tables, and gone to follow in the footsteps of Christ. Many of us bear the name of Christian and yet we hide our faith We live in areas of disobedience to the commandments of Christ. We are lazy and lackadaisical in the application of scriptural truth to our lives. Many of us seldom consider him, think of him, or ever seek him and the doing of his will. For many of us, we bear the name Christian and we know when to turn on the religion switch and when to turn it off. For many of us, we bear the name of Christian and yet there is no discernible difference in our lives from the Life of any other person inhabiting the earth. But, beloved, if we know Jesus Christ and our lives have been changed by Him, there will be a difference and it will be discernible and it will be evident to all those around us. Yes, we stumble. Yes, we are faltering and weak. Yes, we are oftentimes confused. And still, He calls us. Or the tumult to come follow him you see it's a simple challenge of whether we will live in the integrity of faith or whether we will live in a confusion of faith Jesus is entirely faithful to us he is entirely faithful as Savior When he promised that all those who would open their hearts to him and invite him him in, that he would come in and he would take up residence and we would sup with him and fellowship with him, that he would take away our sins and by the power of the blood of the cross make us whole again and give us new life. Jesus is entirely faithful in fulfilling his promise. We are so often faithless in loving him and following Him and obeying Him. But Jesus is always faithful. He is never found wanting. He is always sufficient for our every need. He is entirely faithful, and so we know that no one can pluck us out of his hand. He is faithful, and so we know that when he calls us by name, we will respond to him. We know that we are kept by the power of God unto salvation, because Jesus is entirely faithful, and Jesus is entirely Lord. He is entirely sovereign, completely with the rights to rule over us and to command our lives. There's no aspect of the being of Christ that is not sovereign, majestic, Lord over all creation. And so he is entirely, completely faithful and entirely, completely Lord over all. And so our salvation is secure in him. It is our obedience that is in question. And what he has promised he will deliver. The only question is will we live in grateful praise... Or will we take the blessing and run? I want for us to answer that question this morning by looking at the Apostle Thomas. Thomas was one of the twelve apostles chosen by Christ. We do not know how he was summoned into following Jesus. We don't have that in scriptures before us. We know that he wasn't one of the top-tier disciples, if you will. He wasn't a, a, a Peter, an Andrew, a James, or a John. He was in maybe the second tier, if you, if you do the analysis of it, of it. He was oftentimes associated with Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew, and that those four disciples seem to have worked uh, together for many reasons we believe that. As one of the 12 apostles, he would have seen the work of Jesus from the inside. He would have seen demons cast out. He would have seen illnesses healed. He would have seen the dead raised from the inside. He heard the teaching of Christ where the crowds were confused by the parables. He received that extra instruction and insight from Christ in private. As one who was a member of the 12 apostles, he had a part in that fantastic ministry of Jesus. Sometimes being sent ahead to the village, to announce the coming of the kingdom of God so that when Jesus walked in, they knew what to expect and they knew to come and to listen. Thomas was an apostle of Jesus Christ, but he faced four great critical moments in following Jesus. All the while, a member of the twelve, but all the while, tested as well. I want for us to look at the four critical moments. They're all in the Gospel of John. I hope you have your Bible open uh, to that Gospel or your electronic device powered up to... What do you say, you know? Power up to the Gospel of John? (laughs) You remember when we studied the uh, Gospel of John together that it is a book about believing. It's a book about what it means to believe in Jesus Christ. I I just want to remind you of that real quickly because uh, faith and belief is just central to understanding the gospel of John. In John chapter 1, verse 11 to 13, and I'm turning in my Bible to that passage. This is what, you know, the opening page of the gospel of John, this is what we read. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. He came to the people who thought they knew him best. He came to the very people who should have been the first to respond. They did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God." The opening statement of of what it means to believe in Jesus comes at the very beginning of the Gospel of John. You believe in Christ, you have the right, the authority to be a child of God. And this isn't your own doing, this isn't something that someone else did. This is what God himself does as he radically transforms our heart and our will and our mind and our lives so that we are conformed to the image of Christ. This is what God the Father does. For those who believe in him, we have the right to be called children of God. And so that's, that's a very opening part of it. This, this, by the way, is no small thing. The only, the only reason you hear people flippantly say, we're all God's children. The only reason you hear that is because they live under the influence of a Christian gospel. And they don't even know where that comes from. It comes from the word of God. And it comes by faith in Jesus Christ. Okay. So that's the very beginning of the Gospel of John. Then you look over at chapter 2. So now we know that that the Gospel of John is real interested in what we believe. That we believe in Jesus as as, as Lord and Savior. That kind of thing. All right. So you look at chapter 2, verse 23. Okay. Verse 23. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast... Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. End of the gospel, you can close it up right now. I mean, the whole point was people to believe in Jesus. And here he has performed signs and wonders, and it says many people were believing in him. They were thronging to him. They were having that kind of of response that we would expect. They were believing in Jesus. And so we're thrilled by this. Isn't this exactly what we wanted? The scripture says in the next verse, but Jesus on his part did not believe them. Well, my translation says, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew what was in man. He himself could see that this was a very shallow thing among the people. The lip service might have been there, you know. The hallelujahs might have been there. Praise the Lord. Preach it, Jesus. But he didn't need anyone to explain to him how quickly he would be deserted by those who shouted one day, Hosanna, and the next day crucify him. He didn't need anyone to explain that to him. So evidently faith is more than just a word thing, more than just saying a few things and being religious and, 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 and liking Jesus. Evidently there's, there's something more to it. And the rest of the Gospel of John is trying to help us understand the difference between this shallow believism of chapter 2 and the final confession of chapter 20. And we see faith slowly unfolding throughout the gospel. In chapter 9, the man born blind, and his eyes are open physically, then his eyes open spiritually, and he comes to understand that that man, Jesus, is actually a good man, a great teacher, that he is the Messiah. And his eyes are slowly opened. Mary and Martha at the tomb where their brother had been buried. Come to understand that Jesus Christ is the resurrection and is the life. And then in chapter 20 verse 30 as we read a moment ago. Well we didn't read these verses but we will now. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe. What? Believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. That's where the whole book of John is bringing us. From the shallow believism of chapter 2 to this confession that Jesus is the Christ and having life in his name in chapter 20. So that's the sweep of the gospel of John. The whole gospel. And the interesting thing is that so often the corrective, the, the, the teaching about what it means to believe in Jesus, has to be given to the twelve apostles. The people who are closest to him, the people who have, have given their lives to following him, who are, who are hanging around with him, these are the very ones who need to understand first what it means to be a disciple, to be a believer in Jesus Christ. So that, that by way of introduction, that's, that's sort of the, the framework of the gospel of John. We encounter the Apostle Thomas in this, uh, in this gospel and we see four critical moments of discipleship in the life of Thomas. The first one is found in chapter 6, John chapter 6. And uh, Jesus has fed the, the 5,000. The people are kind of really cool with that. They're very excited about that. They're responding to that, and so the, the, the crowds are still uh, surrounding Jesus, and they're very much impressed with him. Um, look at John 6:35. I know it's here, there. Jesus said to them, "I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger." And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Uh, The the words of Christ lifting the eyes of the people off of physical bread. To see the living bread. And it is Jesus. He says, you come to me, you'll never be hungry again. Never be thirsty again. Well, the other things that he says in there. But uh, skip down to verse 53. No, back up to 52, the Jews then disputed among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? I mean, Jesus said, I am the bread of life, you know, and if you eat of this bread, you'll never be hungry. And they're doing the very rational, the very academic, the very intellectual thing. They're parsing the words of Jesus. How can he give us his flesh to eat? This doesn't make sense. And now here's a perfect opportunity for Jesus to say, oh, no, 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 no. Uh, You're you're taking me wrong here. I'm speaking uh, just metaphorically, and I'm I'm not really anything like that. I'm just saying, if I were the bread of life, you know, that kind of thing. But he, he nails them on it. How can you do this? And Jesus says to them, truly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Circle that verse, memorize it, and bring it to mind the next time we come to the Lord's table. Sometime just let that verse be the invitation to come and partake of the broken body and the shed blood of Christ. Sometime realize how serious it is that we know Christ. That what the elements, the bread and the cup represent realities in our life, because apart from the broken body of Christ, and apart from the shed blood of Jesus, there is no life. And what partaking of the Lord's Supper represents that ongoing fellowship, that ongoing relationship, declaring that Christ is Lord. That is the heart of being a disciple of Jesus. So Jesus says to them, Truly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, drink his blood, you have no life in you. Well, as if that wasn't hard enough. It says, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I'll raise him up on the last day. Don't stop there. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Now in one of the great uh, statements of scripture, look to verse, 30, uh, verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? This is hard. I didn't think it was supposed to be hard. I thought it was supposed to be an easy kind of thing. I thought that... It was supposed to be so simple a child could understand it. It is so simple a child can understand enough of it. And it is so deep and profound that the greatest intellect on earth cannot understand the smallest part of it. The teaching of Christ is so deep and so profound it will constantly draw you deeper and deeper and deeper into the truth of God. But they say this is hard. We didn't expect to do any work. I mean, how often have have Christians said, maybe not in so many words, but by their actions, this is hard. That forgiving thing, you know, where I'm supposed to forgive not seven times, but 70 times seven. That's hard. That thing where I'm supposed to turn the other cheek. That's hard. I mean, surely, Jesus, you're not serious. This is a hard thing for us to understand and to do it's hard this is a crisis it's hard uh, go to verse 66 after this many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him why because it was hard and it was difficult so Jesus said to the twelve, and here's where I bring Thomas in. Thomas is a part of the twelve. He's there with the inner circle. You know, one moment you've got this big, humongous crowd. The next moment you've just got twelve guys left. You know, we're discouraged at that point. You know, we have no idea what we're going to say to our pastor friends at the next pastor's conference when they ask how things are going. But many of his disciples turned back, no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Do you want to leave too? Do you want to bail because it is hard? Do you want to leave because it's not something you do naturally on your own strength? Do you want to go away as well? And bless him, Simon Peter answered. says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we embrace Thomas in that. We have believed. See that word. And have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. That's not a small thing to say. Holy One of God is is, is kind of like a a major title of divinity. And we won't go all into that. But when Peter says, you're the Holy One of God, he's saying something monumental about the person of Jesus Christ. So there's the crisis It got hard. Are you going to leave? Where else will we go? Where else will we go? Who else has words? You alone have eternal life for us. To this point, the ministry had been all amazement. Now it was challenging. To this point, it had been so easy to marvel at the miracles, but now it was challenging. Now there was a critical moment. We come to this point in our lives when we must decide. Sometimes it comes in college. We're a young, believing Christian young person goes off to college and for the first time in their life, they're not surrounded by the cocoon of the church, but they're surrounded by the people of the world taunting, mocking, laughing, ridiculing. And suddenly it becomes hard to be a believer. But where else are you going to go? You see, the key to answering the challenge is the person of Jesus Christ. This is the the, the challenge and the crisis of commitment. To whom else would you be committed? Whom else would you follow? We know about the daily choices of Christian life, to obey or not, to live as a committed person in Christ, a disciple in Christ. Thomas, faced this moment. Go with the crowd or go with Jesus. Go with the popular movement of the masses or go with Jesus. Move along with your society and blend into your culture or go with Jesus. I pray that you have come to a moment of this kind of crisis of commitment and you have confessed with the apostles, Jesus, you are the Holy One of God. It's a critical question. Do you want to go away as well? And at that moment you face a crisis of commitment. By the way, here is the amazing grace of God. You cannot follow Christ on your own. But the Father in his mercy bestows upon believers the gift of the Holy Spirit. The very presence of God in the heart of the believer that enables us to do what we could not do. That makes possible what is impossible. And that gives to us a guidance and a wisdom and a power unknown outside of a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's how we answer the crisis. But it's all circled, it's all focused on the person of Jesus Christ. You want to follow the crowd or do you want to follow Christ? That was the first crisis. The second crisis is in John chapter 11. The setting here is uh, um, the death, impending death of Lazarus, a uh, uh, good friend of Jesus, his sisters Mary and Martha. They've sent word to Jesus that Lazarus is sick. We pick up at verse 5. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. By the way, how often have you criticized Jesus for his timing? I mean, you can just sense the, the criticism. The disciples are thinking, if he's sick, you need to go now. But if you're not gone, don't. I mean, and, and Mary and Martha later on, we found out, Lord, if you, if you hadn't waited, if you'd just gone when we told you, he would have died. I mean, how often have we criticized the timing of Jesus? Well, there's something about Christ, in, and that is that he is Lord and God. And his timing is perfect. And even if we don't see it, it's going to work out according to his good pleasure. So that's, that's sort of an sermon in the middle of this. Now, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, "Let us go to Judea again." The disciples said to him, "Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going to go there again?" Rabbi, you were just in Judea, and when you were there, you remember that the folks got kind of upset, and the religious leaders were out to get you, and they're plotting against you. It's not safe to go to Judea. Why do you want to go there again? And Jesus answered, aren't there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. If anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in them. And after saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Well, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll get better. He'll recover. Uh, We don't really need to go to Judea. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then, Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. See that word again? But let us go to him. So the disciples say, first of all, Jesus, don't go. They're going to kill you and us. I mean, you can just see how they're they're thinking. Jesus, if you go, they're going to kill you and anybody with you, and this isn't safe. We've we've got a good thing going here. Uh, Maybe now's not the time. And then when Jesus said, well, he's fallen asleep, meaning he's died, uh, they said, well, then uh, you don't need to go. There's no point. It's a waste of time. And so Jesus has to get blown with him. He says, look, Lazarus is dead, and let's go. This is an invitation to follow me. This is an invitation to put our lives into the footprints of Christ. Now, at this point, you've got to get the scene. The 12 disciples are around. Jesus says, let's go to Judea. Uh, Not not a good idea. They're going to kill you there. Fine, but it's the light. It's the time of of the Father's uh, ordaining. We need to be working here. Uh, So let's, let's go. Lazarus is dead, but let's go to Judea. Come on, let's go. And the disciples are sitting around. They've just heard Jesus say, let's go. And I can just see Jesus walking to the door. And we expect that Peter would just jump up. Yes, let's go. Come on, guys. We would expect Peter, impetuous Peter, to just say, yeah, let's go, let's follow. But Peter is being very intellectual right now. So are the rest of the disciples. They're thinking to themselves go with Jesus, might die, not a good thing, uh, I'm willing if he's willing, I, you know, I don't, I don't see Philip moving on this one, I, you know, and there's this deathly silence, you can hear the crickets, nothing, and at that point, one of the apostles, who's not the big star, Again, he's not Peter, he's not James and John, he's not Andrew. He's, he's, sort of, he's sort of one of those apostles that you say, and the others, kind of thing, you know? So Thomas, called the twin, said to his disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. Some of the greatest words of courage ever spoken. He didn't say, guys, let's go with him because twelve of us we might be, be able to fend him off and we can we can rescue him if the, if the crowds come after him. He didn't say, guys, let's go with him because along the way we might be able to talk him out of it and redirect him. He didn't say, guys, let's let's go with Jesus because uh, we can at least give him some more moral support. He said, guys, if we go to Jesus, we're going to die. But Let's go because I can't imagine life without him, and so I'd rather die with him. Let's go, guys. And in this critical moment, there was a crisis of courage. Thomas saw the path leading to death. Perhaps he remembered the the words of Jesus, who said, if you want to be a disciple of mine, You've got to deny yourself. You've got to take up that cross, the instrument of execution and death, and follow me. Here is the heart of faithful believers who have gone to persecution and witness and testimony to Christ Jesus as their Lord. Here is the courage of Christians who have stood resolutely abandoned by the world and yet held in the hand of God as courageously they proclaimed Jesus Christ to a world that didn't care, didn't want to hear it, and wanted to silence them. Here is the courage of the Christian who lived in a society that began to celebrate mocking and laughing and ridicule towards the Christian gospel, but preferred to stand up for Christ than to be found silent and wanting in the day of battle. Here is the courage of the Christian disciple. When our values clash with the world, when our view of the family threatens the hedonism and pleasure-centered mentality of our culture, when our insistence on the sanctity of life condemns a world that believes death for the sake of my enjoyment is okay, we would rather die with Jesus than live as cowards. Thomas sensed the real treasure of life, and it wasn't his own, but it was the life of Jesus Christ. Once again, the person of Jesus overcame the crisis. As he focused his eyes and his attention on the person of Jesus Christ, he found the courage to go with him. In Luke 18 Jesus once said, When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? That's a haunting question. Jesus himself asked, when I come again, will there still be anybody with enough courage to believe? And trust me, the crisis of courage. Turn to John 14. Yeah, we're fine. John 14. The disciples are in the upper room. Judas has already left them to go and betray Christ. But... uh, Jesus, in speaking to his disciples, says, Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. What wondrous words of solace and comfort. What a marvelous promise of Christ. How often have we been comforted at the graveside of a loved one by these words. They're marvelous words. They deserve a couple of sermons themselves. But then in verse 4, Jesus says to them, And you know the way to where I am going. And I have this image in my mind of the apostles sitting around the table, listening to Jesus, my father's house, many matches, right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. I go to prepare a place, amen, brother. I'll bring you, I'll take you home to me, amen. And you know the way that I'm going. You said? You know the way to where I'm going. I, and again, I just think the apostles got real still, wouldn't look around thinking to themselves, I don't get it. I guess these other guys get it, I don't get it. I don't want them to know I don't get it, so amen brother. I don't have the foggiest notion what Jesus is talking about. I know the way to where he is going, are you kidding me? Praise the Lord! Uh, and And he says that I know this thing and and I don't, what if he asked me to go there? And I don't, I, I haven't I have the foggiest notion how to get there, hallelujah. And Thomas, courageous Thomas, wants to be where Christ is so much that he says, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus, we're, we're, You remember us? We're the disciples. We're the apostles. Haven't we shown you enough how easily confused we are? Jesus, I don't know where you're going. How could I possibly know how to get there? I am so glad that Thomas had the courage to ask Jesus a question. Because here's what Jesus said in answer. Said, Tom, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Said, Tom, you may not know where I'm taking you, but you do know how to get there. You may not know the destination that God has for your life, you may not know the exact path that the road will take you. In days ahead, you may not know everything about the destinations and the waypoints along the way in the walk with Christ. You may not know the various places where God is taking you in life, but you know exactly how to get there. Why? Because Jesus is the way. And as you follow Him as a disciple of Jesus Christ, He will bring you to where He wants you to be. He said, I'm the way. I'm the truth, and I'm the life. And here was Thomas with a crisis of trust. You know the way, and Thomas said, just tell me what it is, Lord. Jesus said, I'm the way. And in that that moment of crisis, when you say, "I." I don't know how to get to where Jesus wants me to be. The answer is still the same. Jesus is the way. Focus on the person of Jesus Christ. This, by the way, is why we spend a lot of time in Bible study. This is why we spend a lot of time studying who Jesus is, so that it might become to us second nature to speak the words he spoke. To have the attitudes that inhabited his heart. To have the same kind of response to people that he had. The reason we study the scriptures is so that we might know Jesus better. And knowing him better, we might follow him more closely. This was a crisis of trust. And do we trust Jesus enough to say, Lord, I don't know where you're taking me, but I know how to get there by looking to Jesus. And finally as we close look at John chapter 20. We read this just a moment ago. Jesus had appeared to the other disciples in a shuttered room and uh, the disciples of course were very excited about that. Thomas wasn't there at the time. Evidently he had been sent out to get snacks or something. But uh, When he got back, the disciples said, Look, we've seen the Lord. We've seen him. And I suspect, Scripture doesn't say exactly, but I suspect Thomas loved Jesus too much to just say, Oh, well, that's fine. For he knew that this Jesus, whom he loved, was not someone to be treated casually. And so he said, Look, you may have seen him but unless I see him too I'll never believe. I don't know why we call him doubting Thomas. The other disciples had had the advantage. They saw Jesus. They weren't any different. I like to think of Thomas who loved Jesus. He's displayed too much courage and too much commitment and too much trust. And so A few days later his disciples were inside again, this is verse uh, 26, and Thomas was with them and although the doors were locked, Jesus came stood among them. He said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. This is how we know that the only scars in heaven belong to Jesus. Every wound is healed, every malady healed, every deformity healed. But in the hands of Jesus, there are still prints of the nails. What's the hymn? I shall know him by the nail prints in his hands. So Jesus says, take your finger, look. There's the print of the nails. Take your hand, look. Here's where they pierced my side. And Thomas, to his credit, did not hesitate, but simply fell before Christ and he said, My Lord and my God. And he worshipped him. This was the critical moment of discipleship. For all that had gone on before, at this moment, Thomas says, My Lord, my God, the one whom I will serve and the one whom I will worship. It was a critical crisis of worship. And again, it centers on the person of Jesus Christ. And worshiping Him, and adoring Him, and loving Him. Okay, we'll bring this to a close. Jesus said to him, verse 29. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Now folks, there are some verses in the scripture that are written directly to us. Directly about us. Here's what Jesus said about you and about me. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Blessed are those moved by the Spirit of God to come to Christ and follow Him, to worship Him and adore Him, to proclaim Him, my Lord and my God. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him, and though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, which is the salvation of your souls. You haven't seen him, but you love him, and you adore him, and you worship him. Well, those were the four critical moments for Thomas. Moments in which he was challenged to step out of the tepid exercise of religion into a grateful praise of the glory of God's grace in Christ Jesus. Moments in which he was challenged to step away from the world and to worship at the feet of Christ my Lord and my God in complete surrender. So what does a disciple, a follower of Christ, look like? It is a person committed to follow Jesus with courage and with trust who is unashamed, to declare before the world at the feet of Christ, my Lord and my God. Would you bow with me in prayer, please? Father, because of your grace, Christ has called us. Because of your grace, the Holy Spirit has convicted us. Because of your grace, our hearts have been moved. Because of your grace, we've heard the call to follow Christ. Now we need the courage to follow him. And so help us by the power of your grace, through the work and ministry of your Holy Spirit, help us to be courageous disciples of Jesus Christ. For your glory and in his name, amen. As we close in song, the invitation of God's grace goes out as you need to make a decision for Christ and share it with the body of Christ. Do so quickly and obediently.